Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to week 43 of the Lovable Podcast. In this week's episode, we tackle one of the most formidable barriers to practicing our passions. Indeed, one of the most formidable barriers to living a satisfying life in general. The belief that what we do and the life we live has to be extraordinary. By the end of today's episode, you're going to be closer to discerning a path forward for yourself that looks ordinary and beautiful. Before we get going, though, I want to remind you the comprehensive Lovable study experience is available now. Everything we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that goes along with the year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an individual and group study guide for Lovable is available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Again, that's drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. While you're there, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. You'll also get a free sample of Lovable, and then each week you'll get an email on Wednesday mornings, just one a week, with links to helpful content. And of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available wherever books are sold, in paperback, and digital, and audio, so you can check it out wherever you like to buy books. Um, I think that's it. Let's get into this week's episode, How Embracing Ordinariness Leads to Loveliness. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 42 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, Don't Try to Be More Extraordinary, Just Try to Be More Human. We are right in the heart of what we are calling the months of living, the months in which we identify our passions, begin practicing them, and in doing so, live our way into a deeper sense of purpose. This week, we're going to focus on undoing one of the thoughts and beliefs that will stop you from ever getting started on that. It's the belief that your passions need to make your life extraordinary. Before we do that, though, let's check in about your experiences so far in these months of living. What passions are you reconnecting with? What resistance are you noticing? And what are the successes and struggles you're experiencing as you try to overcome it? And of course, if you have practiced last week's exercise, uh, which, by the way, was preparation for this week, what did you experience as you tuned into your senses and imagined having only one day left to see, to hear, to touch, to taste, or to smell. So while you're thinking about what you want to say in that regard, um, I thought I'd share with you an experience I had just what's Wednesday right now, uh, three, four days ago on Sunday morning. Um, so first of all, a confession that I think you'll all resonate with. I'd totally forgotten about the exercise. Um, I, I like to commit myself to practicing it between episodes and I had totally spaced it out and I wasn't doing it and life was throwing all sorts of curveballs at me and I was focused on them, not sort of paying attention to my senses and, and, and connecting with life through them. Um, so anyways, we Sunday morning, our, our church every year, 
um, has a, uh, a church service on it one Sunday morning a year um, in a small town outside of our small town in um, a, a one-room church house um, that was the original church house for our denomination in the area, built in 1850, so 170 years old. You know, one room, 80, like original uh, benches, um, very bare and simple. Um, yeah, the kind of church where on a beautiful day, the door on one end can be open and the door on the other end open and the breeze blows through. So we get there for that. So I always enjoy that service. The simplicity of it is refreshing to me. And, uh, and lo and behold, this year, the, uh, the, the sermon was about finding Jesus and God and the divine in the ordinary parts of life, not just feeling like we have to trumpet all of the, the, the wonderful things that are happening to us, but being able to, to connect with, be aware of, and communicate the ways that, um, that the divine is, is sort of meeting us right where we, we are in our ordinary lives. And it reminded me of our exercise. And so I started, I thought, okay, uh, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to practice uh, uh, the, the discipline of seeing my life, of, of connecting with my, my sense of sight and imagining that this is my last day to see what would I want to pay attention to. And right in the middle of that, um, that moment, I noticed that on the open door behind the, the lectern, there was this gorgeously spun cobweb like up in the top left corner of the door. And the breeze that was coming through was sort of gently blowing it back and forth so that the light, the sunlight was gorgeous. It was a crystal clear blue sky sort of morning. The sunlight was sort of glimmering off of the off of the threads of the spider web and um i was i just had this sort of like moment of awe that that rays of light particles and waves that traveled 93 million miles in a matter of minutes were landing on this web spun by this small spider and that sort of all of it emerged from the original chaos of the universe and just that there was a glory in it in that sort of normal, ordinary moment. Um, and, uh, yeah, it felt like a holy moment. So there, there, my sense of, of sight and my attention to that connected me with what was going on right in front of me. And there was a sense of holiness in it. Um, so I was grateful for that. And actually the rest of the day, I found myself, um, sort of in that vein. So I'm curious to hear from you about whether it's last week's exercise of using your senses to connect with your life or any other, uh, experiences you're having with exercises from this year or, um, or experiences you're just having in general in terms of your growth and your connection with your passions. Stephanie writes, that hopelessness filing cabinet exercise was killer. It really moved me and made me sad. It propelled me to take action on my passions. Oh yeah, so Stephanie's referring to an exercise several weeks back where we, we, we did an exercise that actually helped you to begin to feel hopeless about your, your life changing or beginning to pursue your passions. Hopeless in the sense that um, you know, we wait on circumstances to change. We wait on um, something new to happen, and uh, and that we need to develop a hopelessness about that so that we can begin to take action and change them ourselves. Um, so that's what Stephanie's getting at, and uh, and to be sort of immersed in that experience of if I don't do something here, um, this this life thing that I'm wanting to see grow and transform and be renewed is going to just keep repeating itself and doing the same thing. And so Stephanie, I'm so glad to hear that that one propelled you to take action on your passions and. And for those of you who may have skipped that episode in the past, maybe it's worth going back to, to revisit it. 
Snally writes, um, what was the filing cabinet exercise again? What did I miss? Can someone refer me to it? So again, I think the specific name of that episode um, had hopelessness in it. Um, how hopelessness can become our best hope. Um, so for those of you who are interested in engaging in that exercise in a sort of a deep and intentional way, you can certainly go back to that. Heather writes, since 2018 has been a huge year of change. I just spend every day trying to be present and not be anxious, fearful of the past and my future. Um, Heather, I really appreciate that because I was listening to um, an interview with a, a theologian named Peter Rollins, um, and he, he was talking about how the roots of the word apocalypse are disorientation, um, that an apocalyptic moment in our lives is when everything that oriented our lives would become disoriented to. Um, and so those apocalyptic moments sort of teach us that um, so much of what we assume will happen in the future, that we plan on, that we depend upon, that in many ways we can't count upon that. And, and so those apocalyptic moments do have a way of redirecting us to the present. Um, and I believe, even though th these moments in our lives are very, very painful, that that is one very, very tiny way in which they are a fraction redeemed, um, is that we learn to be rooted in the present moment um, and to be living our lives today rather than upon a future that we can't really predict um, or depend upon. Heather writes, apocalyptic moments, that resonates. It's been that kind of year. The day it hurts to even breathe, I still know I'm going to wake up tomorrow to try again. Um, Heather, that that's such a powerful reminder. I'm going to be involved in a public conversation next Tuesday night in which we are going to be talking about some of the myths we've adopted about how kids develop self-esteem. And, and one of those is that success builds self-esteem um, and, uh, and that actually it's, it's failure that you survive that builds self-esteem. It's, it's struggle, pain, and hardship that you, that you continue through that builds self-esteem, self-confidence, and identity. Um, and so I think you just basically said that, and this is how you said it. The days it hurts to even breathe, I still know I'm going to wake up tomorrow to try again. That is the root of all strength, resilience, self-esteem, and identity right there. Um, you're learning something powerful about yourself. Marie writes, Heather, your comment really resonates. In these two weeks, many parts of my life appear to be on the exit, people and activities I enjoy. So feeling quite a bit of loss, but in its bittersweet way, it created a lot of opening for practicing being present. My inertia was thwarted despite me. I found myself enjoying the small things, the sun after the days of clouds, the wind felt like it was breathing holy breath into me. A new sense of presence has facilitated enjoyment of my family, one of my newer thoughts about what my passion is. Marie, it's so cool to hear because you know we we we've been tracking with you here in these episodes, and uh, so to hear you say that 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 idea that that attention and care and participation in your family is is a, this your growing awareness that this is part of your passion that that seed has taken root and is is becoming an anchor for you. That's that's a really cool thing for all of us to hear, and I think that's exactly how it happens, folks. Um, I don't think there's I don't think this moment of identifying our passions is an epiphany moment. Um, I, I think it's a slow dawning. If you've ever stood on the East Coast and, you know, my goodness, our, our thoughts and prayers go out to those who, who are in the face of that right now. Um, but if you've ever stood on the East Coast on a beautiful day, um, you have... Um, you've noticed how slowly the sun rises. You can see the first glimmers of light. Um, you know, sometimes half an hour to an hour before the sun actually peaks out. And I think that's what the dawning of our passions is like, because you get a little glimmer of it and you just keep paying attention to it. 
until you begin to see the fullness of its light. Um, and so Marie, you're modeling that for us. Thank you. Brenda writes, senses exercise. Realized how much use of sight overrides my other senses. It was good to balance out my awareness appreciation. Isn't that something, Brenda? It just totally resonates with my experience that this idea that we depend so much on sight, but there's so much out there that we are not attending to if we are relying upon that so much. So, um, so yeah, so good to start that exercise. If you start it with a day of attention to what you can see, to also make sure you follow it up with other days in which you're paying attention to what you can smell and hear and touch and taste. Angela writes, I have played with walking down the street at times and I will close my eyes and see if I can get the sight of where I'm walking. And I've been able to see as if my eyes open. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great example, Angela, is that um, when, we, when we retract that, that attention, uh, that, that sense of sight, our other senses begin to, to heighten and make up for it. Um, and so that's a, that's a pretty powerful exercise. Um, I trust that you're walking down a street with very little traffic and let's make sure that disclaimer is on the suggestion of that practice. Sonali writes, if we meditate on the last day of the sense of taste, then that is going to be a fun day, right? Um, I actually, um, I've sort of had weight issues that fluctuate. Um, and right, I was in a particularly difficult period with that and, and right during that time, mindfulness interventions were coming into vogue in, in therapeutic circles. And one of the more powerful interventions for weight loss is mindfulness. Um, so now for folks who are struggling with weight issues, um, what I tell them is, okay, couple, just a couple rules about, about eating. Um, number one, you don't do anything else while you eat. No checking your phone, no watching TV, no reading a book. You're only attending to the flavor um, and to the signals from your body about when you're actually full. Um, and you have to eat with your feet flat on the floor <laughs> um, because that creates a sense of groundedness and rootedness in the presence and in the present moment. And, and what you see is that as your mindfulness about eating increases, um, the amount of food that you take in begins to decrease um, because what's happening as you rush through eating is um, you're, you're sort of flirting with a pleasurable experience, a satisfying experience, but you're never quite getting there. So you throw the next bite in and then get distracted from it. If you can settle into that moment of presence with taste, it is going to be a fun day, but I bet, I bet you actually end up eating less quantity than you usually do. Brenda writes, also made a good reflection preparation for first meeting with new grandbaby and being amazed by watching a very young human discovering his senses. Oh, that's beautiful, Brenda. Um, to watch a new human being sort of getting, touching the world for the first time, tasting it, smelling it, seeing it for the first time. Um, we, we, we can enter into that second infancy. I think that's what we're saying here. We, we have the power to do that. We only need one thing, which is intention. Um, and a steadily growing ability to be mindful of when our attention and intention wanders away from the present and to bring it back. And we'll be like little babies again, seeing it for the first time. I felt like that on Sunday, looking at that cobweb, just in awe. It's like I'd never seen anything like it before. Mike writes, one day at a time has been really helpful to me over the years as a way to approach this idea of being present. Um, yeah, I know it's like a one day at a time is like a, it's a principle that you sort of associate with, um, with recovery movements, you know, like one day, okay, I'm not going to drink today. And then tomorrow I'm not going to drink today. And then tomorrow I'm not going to drink today. Um, but you know, anything that helps us recover, um, from, um, a deeply harmful practice and habit in our life, um, is probably also going to help those of us on a daily basis 
who aren't trying to overcome anything in particular except mindlessness um, and lack of presence. So thanks for that reminder, one day at a time. Alex writes, been following you since my apocalyptic moments when my 20-year marriage ended back in 2014. Your loving messages helped me through the worst of my life. I want to personally thank you for sharing your passion. You will never know the blessing it is to those you reach. Thank you, Kelly. Oh, Alex. First of all, I'm grateful to hear that. Um, it directly connects with what we're going to be talking about today, that you don't practice your passions because you know the... Um, you know how they're going to turn out. Um, you practice them because you're you're not whole unless you do. Um, but to be to be reminded to be told every once in a while that the practicing of them has has been meaningful is of course a great blessing and a gift. So I I thank you for that. Um, today we're going to focus on on practicing them regardless of receiving that eventual blessing or affirmation. Um, thanks as always really um, for another. Um, Another brave, I'm, this is the word I'm going to put, it's just a brave discussion. Just, you're just a bunch of brave people um, uh, going, through, going through life, going through the hardship, finding ways to the life that you want to live. Um, so thanks for another brave discussion. Let's move now into this week's topic, which, as I said earlier, it's uh, last week's episode um, and practice. We're sort of preparing you for this one. They all build on each other. Um, this week it's about confronting this toxic belief that our passions in our lives must be extraordinary in order to count. Um, in this case, once again, there is a direct parallel to Lovable. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read an excerpt from Lovable before we get into this week's content. It begins in the middle of page 30 of the paperback edition. He leans forward in his chair, one foot tapping the floor rapidly, jaw clenched, head bowed. He's in his early 20s, born and raised in a well-to-do household in an affluent Chicago suburb. He attended an elite high school and then, following in his father's footsteps, completed a business degree at an excellent college and is poised to find a prestigious sales job. His path seems clear and extraordinary. However, he has no interest in sales. So on this afternoon, he's in my office, plagued by insecurity, weighed down by loneliness, and utterly confused about the trajectory of his life. In a moment of exasperated honesty, his agitation boils over into a question. Have you ever felt like we're all on this big rock hurtling through space and no one has any idea what the heck is going on? He looks up at me and despite his best efforts to keep his emotions in check, his eyes are brimming with tears. In the midst of his life's journey, he finds himself waking in a dark wood. He is Dante in tennis shoes. That's a reference to a Dante quote. He is Dante in tennis shoes. When we turn our purpose into another search for worthiness, the straight way is easily lost. While shopping recently, I came across a t-shirt emblazoned with the phrase, Be More. In the store, it struck me as inspirational, so I bought it. But when I wore it to a friend's holiday party two days later, I had second thoughts. As I greeted people, I put myself in their shoes. Be more. In other words, who you are is not enough. We need more from you. Sometimes when we aim for inspiration, we deliver humiliation instead. Life is often painful and messy. It's blood, sweat, and tears messy. It's frustration and anxiety and sadness and embarrassment messy. It can be tragic and unpredictable. It spins us around, flips us upside down, and disorients us, sometimes daily. In the midst of this wild and messy life, it's no wonder we feel like our lives depend on making some sense of the chaos. In a way, they do depend on us making meaning from it all. To live fully and to love fiercely, and those just might be the same thing, we have to ask, why am I here? What am I here to do? What is my purpose? Yet, in the dark wood of our shame, where the straight way has been lost, we tend to answer those questions with t-shirt slogans, be more, and motivational cliches, leave a legacy, be a difference maker, make an impact. Our shame tells us that to be enough, we must be more than enough. 
To live an acceptable life, we must live an extraordinary life. So it shuts us down. Daunted by our own lofty expectations, many of us give up before we even begin. Others of us do begin, but our sense of worthiness becomes fused with the outcome of our endeavors. Our successes become a compulsive and exhausting exercise in proving in our, ourselves, and our failures turn into self-loathing and disillusionment. In our efforts to make a big splash, we eventually drown. Recently, Caitlin started taking the piano lessons that she's been begging to begin for more than a year. After one of her first practice sessions, she came to me and observed with the innocence of a little one, Daddy, it's really hard to play the piano when you're thinking about how happy your mama and daddy are that you're playing the piano. I wish I'd had that kind of insight when I was six. Perhaps I did. Perhaps we all did and we forgot. Remembering it would have saved me a lot of searching because, like playing the piano, it's awfully hard to live a life of purpose when you're thinking about how significant your purpose must be. In the end, ironically, our quest to matter gets in the way of doing the things that matter to us most. So I look into the eyes of Dante in tennis shoes and I tell him the truth. I know exactly how he feels. I tried to be more by earning academic degrees. I thought when I transitioned from a small town high school to a Big Ten university, I would find my purpose in the world. I didn't. So I tried again. I entered a graduate program at another Big Ten university. I didn't find the answers there either. So I assumed when I achieved the summit of academic degrees, a doctorate in philosophy, all the confusing things within me would fall into place. They didn't. I fell into a depression the year after I earned my doctorate because nothing in me had changed and there were no more degrees to pursue. I awoke in a dark wood where the straight way of academic achievement had been lost. I was Dante in khakis. So I looked at him and I tell him I know what it's like to carry the burdens of extraordinariness, which shame places on our shoulders. I know what it's like to believe you must meet and exceed your parents' expectations or at least their example. I know what it's like to think you're supposed to be a superhero in your own story mastering life's challenges in a series of effortless leaps and bounds, and making a name for yourself in the process. I tell him none of us can bear this burden of the extraordinary. Yet before we embrace our worthiness, we mistakenly believe we must. I look at Dante and tennis shoes and simplify things with a question. Do you love yourself? Now, exactly the way you are, ordinary you, do you love yourself? His puddled eyes overflow as he slowly, almost imperceptibly, shakes his head from side to side. So I say as gently as I can, you have to let something seep deep, sink deeply into your soul, and until you do, we're not going to talk about your purpose or even your job. Those things can't bear the weight of your search to find worthiness and extraordinariness. And then I tell him the most important thing I've learned about purpose. There is loveliness in ordinariness. So with that context uh, from Lovable, here's the reading for this week from week 42 of the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled... Don't try to be more extraordinary, just try to be more human. We're riding our bikes through the dead. Our family, my wife and all three kids, is on our first bike ride after moving back to my boyhood hometown. The town is a lot hillier than I remember it, and the cemetery is the flattest ground we can find for a ride. The day is sunny and just the right amount of warm as we ride along the one-lane asphalt road through the fields of tombstones. My kids don't even seem to notice, but I can't take my eyes off the names and the dates on the weathered graves. Some have been there for more than a century. Names I don't know and names that, perhaps, no one can remember. Some are more recent. Less than two years ago, the judge who I trembled in front of during elementary school mock court stepped off this mortal coil and into the mystery of what comes next. It seems like yesterday he sat above us, youthful, healthy, powerful. Time undoes all of these things. We're riding through the dead, and the awareness of it does to me what it always does. 
It makes me want to seize the day. I think of that scene in Dead Poet Society, the young boys looking at the pictures of young men long since past, Robin Williams leaning in amongst them in a ghost-like whisper exhorting them, Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. The urge to do so seizes me, like it does every time I'm faced with my mortality. But then I'm faced with my reality. My emerging adolescent son is grumpy and disgruntled about being with the family because he is, well, an emerging adolescent. And if I pay close attention, I can understand his position. We are not easy to be with. Younger son is complaining about every slope, and my daughter, for heaven's sake, hasn't quit chattering since we left the house, and at first it was adorable, but 15 minutes later, it's like fingernails on the chalkboard. I consider my options. I can try to make everyone see the world my way. I can try to convince them this is all fleeting and we need to suck the marrow from all of it. I can try to make them all happy and joyful and awestruck at the wonder of things. But I've tried that before. I know how it goes. The one guaranteed way to make grumpy people grumpier is to try to make them less grumpy. Ultimately, I know I want to make this day extraordinary and they're going to keep it so ordinary. I feel like giving up on turning the day into something it is not, so I do. And it is the giving up that saves me from the conflict I would have created by trying to make everyone feel a certain way, from thinking I'm not enough and from acting like this life isn't enough. In other words, it saves me from devaluing most of what it means to be human. Yes, the extraordinary is a gift some of us receive at rare fleeting moments, but our humanity is the ordinary gift we are, all of us, always receiving all the time. It includes grumpy adolescent boys and tired legs and joy so bottomless it can't stop talking. It includes yearning and hope and disappointment and despair. It includes fear of missing out, shame about being left out, and the humiliation of being pointed out. It includes success and failure, victory and loss, loneliness and unity. It includes every moment of every day because the opposite of death isn't life, it's presence. Your heart can beat and your mind can think, but if you aren't aware of the moment in front of you in all its grit and glory, you aren't really alive. So I decided to be present to what is, all the ordinary ups and downs of this road we're riding on and this life we're moving through. I welcome all of it and something extraordinary happens. For a moment, I feel fully human, which is to say fully alive, as we ride our bikes through the dead. So that is our reading for this week. Um, I find myself unexpectedly emotional reading it. Um, And I think that's because um, I was reading a book this week by uh, Stephen Pressfield, a new book of his called The Artist's Journey. Um, And he talks about how um, if you want to know what an artist's vocation is, what their calling is, what they feel drawn to. Don't look at a piece of their work, look at their body of work and start to try to understand what the theme of that body of work is. And as I read that, I realized if if there's a theme, I mean, I write about a lot of different things, but if there's a theme to my work, it is relinquishing the search for the extraordinary and embracing the beauty the holiness and the loveliness of our ordinary lives. Um, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this. I mean, we live in this world where everything is supersized and amplified and customized and intense and loud and over the top and amazing and extraordinary. And you can't get anybody's attention unless you promise that it's going to fix everything. And 
Um, and I think, I think what that is, I think that's our shame sort of on, on public display, sort of everyone compulsively responding to that voice of shame in them that says, you know, you have to stand out or don't, don't bother standing up. You have to finish first or, you know, don't bother getting started. Um, and so I'm struck by just how in the face of all of that culture and all of that influence, um, how radically sort of counterculture it is to, to sort of say, you know, I'm not going to just tolerate uh, my ordinary life. I'm going to embrace it. I'm gonna love it. I'm gonna thrive within it. Um, I'm going to I'm going to suck the marrow from my ordinary life rather than feeling like I have to find an extraordinary one to to enjoy. So anyhow, that's where I'm at today. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Melinda writes: When we turn our purpose into another search for worthiness, we are lost. Wow, needed to hear that. Um, Melinda, I think. You know, we talk about in Lovable how these these three major movements of life, embracing our worthiness, finding belonging, and practicing our passion so that we find a purpose, how they're also intertwined. And I feel like this is one of the, the very significant ways that our search for a purpose is connected to uh, and reconnects us to the work of worthiness, is that as soon as we begin to go, hey, I think I might actually want to do that, um, the shame that we've we've moved past for a little while that's we've got enough space from so we can actually attend to our passions and embrace them actually crops back up and and says oh well but if you do that it you know um yeah it has to be a ridiculously profitable business or if you do that it has to be a bestseller or if you do that you have to get into an art show (laughs) or if you if you do that, your kids need to all go to Ivy League schools. If you know Marie, right? If your family is your passion, well, then then you better produce something pretty extraordinary. And so your shame sort of creeps right back into this moment in which we're trying to embrace our passions, and we want to catch it because it will stop us from getting started, or it will turn the practicing of our passions into a compulsion, um, which will smother them. Um, so we want to be careful of that. Sonali writes, quote, daunted by our own lofty expectations, we often give up before we begin. Um, yeah, I think um, we've been addressing all sorts of different sort of subtle forms of resistance that, that creeps up. But I think when, I think the loftier our expectations and the farther they are from our reality, you know, the size of that gap is correlated with how unlikely we are to even start trying, right? So if I've never written a word, but um, for for writing to be w- worth my time and to be worthy of me practicing that passion, I need to become a New York Times bestseller. That gap's so huge that no one will ever get started writing their first word if that's if that's what shame is telling them that they need to do with it. Um, but if the goal is to write because you need to write, because you have words that need to come out of you, because there's a simple joy when when you... Uh, you go into you and come back with something that you didn't know was in there. Um, that that simple joy is that's the ordinary simplicity and loveliness of it, and that's the that's good enough reason for practicing it. Um, it doesn't need to be extraordinary. Stephanie writes, "This is resonating deeply with me. I have put on masks to endeavor to meet others' expectations." Um, yeah. Um, what does my passion have to look like for others to approve of it? Right. Um, I remember uh, this this past year reading a lot of nonfiction by Madeline Lee Engel, the r- ridiculously successful author of Wrinkle in Time. Well, Wrinkle in Time, she didn't publish that until 
decades, at least a decade after she had started writing for a living. Um, and so it was, you know, at least a decade's worth of, I got nothing to show for this. I'm not, I'm, I'm a mom of many kids and I could be spending this time that I am, I'm scribbling in my notebook. I could be spending this time doing something with them. How do I justify this? Well, you know, um, and sometimes we, we try to put on appearances to justify what we're doing. Um, and the reality is we can take that mask off and say, hey, I'm just me and I'm just doing the thing that I love to do. And uh, it's pretty ordinary and I'm pretty happy <laughs> doing it that way. Brenda writes, I absolutely love this section in Lovable. Wish every teenager college kid, college kid could get this um, before uh, you know, heading off into, into life. Um, that's been one of the, the big surprises for me, Brenda, is how much um, college kids and young adults have embraced Lovable. Um, that it's, you know, if they're willing to crack it in open and take a look at it, it's, it's sort of telling them what I, it's telling them what I would have wanted to hear at that stage of life, would have saved me a lot of heartache. Um, and the funny thing about it is, I don't know that I necessarily would have done anything differently but I think the way I would have done it would have been radically different, without compulsion, um, without a sense that my self-worth was on the line, um, with less of a focus on outcome and more of a focus on, on presence and the, the, the work itself. Um, so yeah, I hope that young people uh, get this and, and, and recognize that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna have to end up doing something radically different than, than what they were planning, although sometimes that happens but they're probably gonna do it radically differently. Um, so thanks for that, Brenda. Deb F writes, life is extraordinary unto itself. We just need to be, right, rather than doing. The largest lesson I have learned from Lovable. We just need to be. What a beautiful concept, just, uh, coming from a place of abundance, that life is already extraordinary. I don't have to do anything to it to make it extraordinary. I just need to be and be present to it. And that's in part why last week's exercise was beginning to prepare us for this week, um, to notice that uh, a cobweb um, waving back and forth in the corner of a doorway with light from 93 million miles away spilling on it is extraordinary. Um, and so I don't need to be wasting my life uh, going out of my way, spending my days, driving myself into the ground to create something extraordinary. I just need to, to open my eyes. Mike writes, letting go of shame. Yeah, and that's, you know, we, again, Lovable is organized in these three movements from embracing our, letting go of our shame and embracing our worthiness to cultivating belonging and practicing our passion. But the letting go of shame doesn't cease at, at, at the end of that first act of embracing our worthiness. Some, some of it always sort of accompanies us into the next act of, of building our circles of belonging. And we, we wrestle with it throughout that, right? Am I worthy of revealing myself to, pe myself to people truly? Um, will, will, people, will people still be interested in me? Um, am I worthy of practicing this passion even if it doesn't produce some magnificent result in the world? Um, that shame we're constantly attending to. And actually our cultivating belonging and practicing a passion are just additional exercises to help us um, continue to let go of that shame. Alex writes, I am enough, my epiphany, my mantra. It took my life being ripped apart by divorce to find this truth. It's so often the case um, that that sort of epiphany is precipitated by intense suffering and pain. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like until we're given no other choice 
but to um, to reorient ourselves to life that will just sort of keep keep going on. Um, and that's not to say that pain is sent into our life on purpose or anything like that. Um, but when it is, we can we can certainly see it as an opportunity um, to to redeem it a little bit by entering into a wholer sense of worthiness. Okay, let's just take a break in the discussion um, to go ahead and and read this week's uh, practice, and then we'll go ahead and continue from there. Week 42 practice. As you begin to take concrete actions towards resurrecting your truest self by living out the things you are most passionate about, you will inevitably want to make your life extraordinary. This is okay, normal. It is, ironically, ordinary to desire the extraordinary because it is one of the ways shame slowly creeps in, saying you aren't enough, your people aren't enough, this moment isn't enough, what you're doing isn't enough, your life isn't enough. We must resist this temptation. Living our lives to the fullest doesn't mean living lives that are the greatest. And the best way to resist this temptation is to pay attention to the ordinary because the ordinary is happening all around us and it is utterly beautiful. This week, make time for each of these exercises. All right, here we go. Number one. Recall your exercise from last week. Revisit the lists of the beautiful things that you noticed on each day in which you were practicing um, attending to one of your senses for the last day. Next, to each, make a note about whether that thing was ordinary or extraordinary. And I mean that in the sense of the word of like, would, would, would the people out there sort of describe it as extraordinary? Because it might have felt extraordinary in the moment, like that cobweb, but really a cobweb's pretty ordinary. So next to each, make a note about whether that thing was ordinary or extraordinary. Pay attention to how many of the most beautiful things in life are totally ordinary. Number two, make a list of five people you know who have lived ordinary lives. These are people who no one is ever going to write a book about or make a movie you know, inspired by a true story but these are people whose lives are beautiful nonetheless. Notice something. Their lives are beautiful because they feel comfortable being themselves and don't feel compelled to be any more than that. Every time, this is true of the most peaceful people we know. Make a list of those five people and contemplate their lives. Number three, conclude the week by returning to your original Christmas list from the first week of these months of living. Note which of the wants on your list could be labeled ordinary. Furthermore, consider what other ordinary wants, longings, and passions you might now add to your list as a result of this week's reflection. This collection of ordinary passions will be an essential part of the resurrection of your truest self. They are enough. As we embark upon the living out of our passions, we can resist the urge to do something big and flashy by paying attention to that which is small and beautiful, ordinary and enough. Watch, attend. Small is big, ordinary is extraordinary. Beauty doesn't discriminate. It infuses all things. So I'm curious as, as I wonder just if, if by chance immediately anything comes to mind for you. Uh, just one thing that you, you know you sort of want to do with your life, but you sort of tend to dismiss it because it seems like it might end up just kind of so typical, so ordinary that the, the outcome of it won't be something that uh, the world would catch its breath at. Um, I wonder if anything like that comes to mind for you right now. Angela writes, a man once told another man his opinion of my house was that it was ghetto, was told about this. I did feel unhappy that this person had judged my house, but I did realize I worked and went through many things to own this home free and clear, this home I have no debt with. So I see how someone's negative judgment could have affected my sense of self-worth, but what it did, 
Instead, I appreciate every experience, good or bad, I've had because those experiences have made me into me. You know, I think that's such a practical example, Angela. It's such a good example of the feedback that the world wants to give us, wants to try to continue to reinforce this belief that um, if a house doesn't look a certain way, if we don't look a certain way, if our passion doesn't look a certain way, well, then it's no good. Um, and that in that moment, you were able to kind of um, reconnect with your story, reconnect with um, the journey that it took to get to this place and say, you know what? It doesn't really matter to me what this looks like to you. This home is a symbol of my resilience and my hard work and my perseverance. And, uh, and that, makes it, that makes it good enough. Um, it is a representation of all those qualities of my character and I'm good enough. Um, it's a beautiful example and I think all of us need it as we contemplate this idea of going out and practicing passions that the rest of the world might scratch their head at and go, not sure why like why why so much time on that what's the why would you dedicate yourself so thoroughly to that um it doesn't it doesn't look like what we'd expect somebody to to want to spend that much time on um yeah that's okay because i'm i'm sticking with it i'm doing it i started it i'm persevering with it um and i find moments of joy in the ordinariness of it deb f writes angela how sad this guy even had to pass this judgment on you in your life what is going on inside of him um and, and really, as we, as we relinquish our shame and we don't need, feel the need to protect ourselves, then when we experience shame directed at us from other people, the response is less protection and more compassion. It's like, oh, oh, I see what's happening here. Um, you're ashamed and you're trying to bring me down so you feel better. Um, and so I'm not going to come down <laughs> uh, with you today. Um, and I'm going to have some compassion. You're in a lot of pain. And... Uh, um, I'm not going to magnify your pain by retaliating. Like I'll just, um, I'll just try to, um, try to give you the benefit of the doubt. Mike writes, "I'm convinced this need to be extraordinary to compensate for my shame is the cause of most all of." And Mike, I can't read the rest of your comment, um, but if I was finishing that sentence, if it was a fill in the blank, I would finish it with most or all of my suffering, um, not pain. Pain happens. Um, I, this morning, I was on a bike ride and a pedestrian surprised me and I avoided her and I spilled hard and I think I might have torn a muscle in my calf. Pain happens. Um, suffering is, oh no, because you're going to be hobbled for a while, you can't do this and this and this and your worth is dependent upon doing all of those things and being extraordinary. So now, now you're in trouble. No pain, I'm going to endure the pain of it. Um, suffering comes from the belief that being slowed down and not being able to do this or that or the other um, somehow makes me less worthy. Mike adds, simple question to ask myself, who am I trying to impress? If the answer is that thing in me, <laughs> right? That thing in me who it has expectations for me. Um, and it's such a great point, Mike, because it might be, you go, actually, I don't, I don't think of the world as particularly expecting so much from me. I don't think anybody's really paying attention. And yet still, I feel like I have to produce something extraordinary with my passions. It's because it's because you do have uh, a bit of an audience inside of you, that voice of shame constantly sort of chiming in and telling you it needs to be more. Stephanie writes, yes, real success is contentment and peace. Um, so in this series of conversations we're going to be having here over the next couple of months, um, these public conversations in Naperville, um, one of the so one of the premises is that success is not achievement, 
success is living in alignment with one's true self. And when you live in alignment with one's true self, you get to experience more and more contentment and peace, right? So contentment and peace, I think, are symptoms of true success, which is living in alignment with oneself. So well said, Stephanie. Stephanie adds, this practice is busting my paradigms of what the world urges me to be. Yep. You know, Stephanie, the world wants you to buy one more masterclass, right? So that you can scale up what you're doing. Um, and sometimes that happens and sometimes that's fine. Um, but uh, I hope that this practice is busting up that paradigm because we need to be helping get people get, get, get sort of get off the hook of all of our, um, all the ways we urge them. They need to do more and be more. Brenda writes, I'm ordinary. Thumbs up. I don't have to be a top-notch, highly trained youth leader. I can volunteer, um, and I can't see the rest of your comment, Brenda, but that's exactly it. Like, um, if I, if the gap between where I'm at is here and then a highly trained, top-notch youth leader, I will never even volunteer to begin with. Um, and it's not to say that you don't end up a highly trained, top-notch youth leader. That might be where you end up with your combination of skill and passion, but the point is not to get there. The point is to practice my passion today. Brenda adds, I can volunteer to care about four to six teens in my church and encourage other families to do the same. Love it. Love it. That is so it. I don't need to save every child. Um, I don't need to become renowned for having large followings of teenagers who all say I'm amazing. I just pick four to six kids and I pour into them with my passion. Um, and I trust that if everybody who had that passion did that, then all the children are taken care of, but I can't do that on my own, so I'm going to pour my focus and attention and energy into this. That's beautiful, Brenda. Marie writes, the first thing to pop in my head, a passion that I didn't think of before, simplifying and downsizing and tidying, not to impress, but for the beauty of simplicity. Yep. And I, I honestly think, Marie, that as you create simplicity and space around you, and this goes way back to the months of listening, um, you're actually creating more space for increased clarity about your passions to, to arise. Um, so I think those two things are going to work together um, in a synergistic way to give you more and more clarity about where you want to go with your passions. All right, everyone. Thanks again for really another wonderful, beautiful discussion. Next week, we'll focus on another belief that keeps us from getting started. The belief that what we do with our lives must make a measurable difference in the world. Not just be extraordinary in terms of achievement, but that we have to make a difference. Now, this one gets right up into a lot of our um, our, our, our best angels, our, our desire to see the world fixed and redeemed and repaired, but it can also stop us from getting started. So we're going to get into that next week. It'll be week 43 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, Don't Do Something More Meaningful, Do Something More You. Until then, remember, you are lovable even when your life is ordinary especially when your life is ordinary. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's dr kellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. <laughs>